Ruth chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. And um, if you would uh, join me in reading God's Word, I will be reading from the New International Version of Scripture for the moment. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They without her two sons and her husband. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the king that would ultimately come and answer to Naomi's longing for a future, for life itself. You raised her future hope from the dead in order that you might come and die joining her in the tomb of despair, and then raised that she and us might join you in the life that is truly life. Now may the God of hope, whose word I endeavor to speak, fill us with all joy and peace in believing by the power of the Holy Spirit as he hovers over the waters of this congregation attending your word. Amen. Amen. It's been said that to stop hoping is to stop living, and there's certainly some truth to that. One author says that hope is so close to the core of all that makes us human that when we lose hope, we, we lose something of our very selves. To stop hoping is to accept defeat. It's to declare the brokenness of this world victorious. Sadly, hopelessness increasingly characterizes this generation, and not without cause. We live in dark times. Many think it's best to stop hoping. A to Z quotes, um, which is, can be found on the internet apparently, uh, they offer their top 17 quotes on hope. Most of them cast hope in a negative light, not a positive light as I might have expected Naomi, in our text, probably could relate to that sentiment. She certainly has reasons to scoff at hope. She will, in fact, scoff at hope later in the chapter. I have to come back next week for that, but she will. Why do people scoff at hope so much today? Maybe. Maybe it's the frequency of mass killings. So-called random acts of violence are happening with increasing frequency. They're, they're senseless. Could it be the endless bickering of our public discourse? Or the blanket of darkness cast by awakening sensuality years before its time? I don't know, but there's plenty of darkness to go around today. Where, where do we find hope in such a dark world? What is it we hope for in such a dark world? When I say we, 
I mean us, the church, believers in Christ gathered together as a people. What do we hope for and for what do we hope? Is our hope in a sentimental, things will get better attitude? Are, are you supposed to believe in yourself, as I saw one ministry offer on one of their posts this week? Is that where we find hope? Somehow believing in ourselves. God help us if we do. And if that's the basis of hope, and that's usually what the world offers, no wonder it's in such short supply. If we do hope, for what are we hoping? What is the hope which Christians proclaim to the world? And how is it that we proclaim it? Well, Ruth... This first section, verses 1 through 5 in the first chapter, is about the descent of hope into the tomb of despair. The rest of the book is about resurrection, righteousness, and redemption. And we'll continue to answer those questions about what we hope for and, and how, we, how we find that hope. But it starts here. On Easter, I suggested that the theme of the whole Bible is the Easter message. Resurrection. It began with the faith of Abram, or later Abraham, and it continues right through the storyline of Scripture. Ruth is no less a story of resurrection, but not without a burial first. God raises the dead, not the mostly dead. As Miracle Max and the Princess Bride would have us know, there's a big difference between dead and mostly dead. To understand just how much a story of resurrection Ruth is, we have to see in these opening verses the descent of hope into the tomb of despair. In five verses, Naomi moves from mostly dead to dead, if you will. That will make the way for faith in the God who raises the dead, which we'll see starting next week that that is indeed the faith that Ruth has. Taken as a whole, what we see in this book is resurrection. Resurrection, righteousness, and redemption are like three cords of a rope woven together. Ruth, the book, puts on display the transformative nature of resurrection in primarily two characters, Ruth and Boaz, which we will be introduced to, uh, well, Ruth today and Boaz later on. Today, we're going to explore the descent of hope into the tomb of despair under four headings. First, in a hopeless time. Second, hoping for bread. Third, dying hope. And finally, fourth, dead hope. Uh, don't worry. I will not leave you, send you home in the tomb of despair. I, in, in our conclusion, we will go beyond that tomb to where we find hope today as the church and for what we hope. We'll, we'll get a glimpse into maybe the rest of the book a bit so that we have some hope to, to cling to as we leave today. So let's begin under that first heading, In a Hopeless Time. Now it happened in the days when the judges judged. Now, I read the NIV earlier. I'm just going to read my translation from here on out. Now, not because I think it's a better translation or it maybe should be. It's, it's obvious if I went through it ten more times, I'd make so many changes, but... It highlights some things that I think are important for us as English readers to note in order to catch the story. And the first you see right there, it happened in the days when the judges judged. 
It's a redundancy to put emphasis on the time. Ruth does not begin once upon a time, as if it were a fairy tale. It locates the story in a particular period in Israel's history. In the time when the judges judge might not mean a lot to most of us here today. Judges is not a popular book for sermon series, I've discovered. It's certainly not seeker-sensitive. For that matter, it's not church-member-sensitive. It's, it's a rough book. When, when Ruth hit the newsstand, everyone in Israel knew about the darkness described in the book of Judges. It, it, it'd be a little bit like, it happened in the wild, wild west that... That gives you some sense of what's going on, but it would be street death and disintegration were widespread. Woohoo! There's no doubt that the book of Judges is one of the lowest points in all of history, certainly in scriptural history. Judges, that book that precedes, comes right before Ruth in the canon of scripture in the Bible. Judges starts with stories of Israel's apostasy and the violence inflicted upon them by the nations around them because of their disobedience. For instance, the Philistines would come in and take their crops and so forth. And it ends with violence being inflicted by themselves upon one another. So it goes from bad to worse and rapidly so. When this book was committed to writing, Bethlehem of Judah was famous. But at the end of the book of Judges, Bethlehem of Judah is not a safe place to live. A certain ominous feeling would come on the reader moving from Judges into the book of Ruth with simply reading about a man from Bethlehem of Judah sojourning somewhere, anywhere. And this book explains how it got transformed from such an ominous place to such a famous place. As we'll see next week, that that Ruth would choose to travel back to Bethlehem of Judah with her mother-in-law, as the chapter goes on, seems perilous. What, What was she thinking? As Judges moves from bad to worse, twice we read the refrain in the book of Judges toward the end. We read this refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That will actually be one of the sentences in our occasional series that we added when we were going through how do we understand the whole story of the Old Testament and then the New. And, and we added that line to that series from what was originally positive because I think it's vital that we understand the depth of human depravity that is painted in the book of Judges. So we'll get more into that when we get to that message. But for now, realize that Ruth is set in a time when people did what was self-serving. But God has a man who, goaded on by the faith of Ruth, faithfully does what is right in God's eyes. The theological purpose of Ruth, I mean, we can talk about various purposes that an author has, and certainly there's more than one theological purpose, more than one purpose that any book has. So I don't want to overly reduce this, but there's a key theological purpose in this book, and I I would say that it's to explain how God will remain faithful to His covenant people who have strayed so far from Him. 
Despite being planted by God in the land of milk and honey, the promised land, a, a new garden that had been booted out of the garden back in Genesis chapter 3. But now God is returning them to a land flowing with milk and honey, a, a new Eden, if you will. In order that they might bear fruit, in spite of that, they have lived wickedly as, the, as wickedly as the nations around them. Yet God has a small remnant. Even if he has to snatch a key player out of Moab, he has a remnant. And through that remnant will come a righteous king who will rule in righteousness. And that's where the book ends, pointing to that righteous king. Bringing about the kingdom of God envisioned from the start, from when God first chose his people. He set them up to have a kingdom of justice and righteousness which had failed miserably. But now there's hope again for such a kingdom. For, for what do we hope? This book speaks to that question. We are called to be that remnant in the dark world today. The remnant we see in the book of Ruth and with Ruth and Boaz foreshadows the church. We too hope for God's coming kingdom. Not just to end all this, but to tr transform it in the meantime. To say when the judge is judged is to say in a hopelessly dark time. That leads us to our second heading. Hoping for bread. And we might add, hoping for bread while there's still hope. Read with me again verses 1 and 2. Now it happened in the days when the judges judged, a famine came in the land, and a man from Bethlehem, which we could just read the house of bread, of Judah left to sojourn in, or he immigrated to, the region of Moab, a place known for being inhospitable to Israel, but fertile. He and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, my God is king. And the name of his wife, Naomi, pleasantness or flourishing. And the name of his two sons, got it bad and goner. Ephrathites from the house of bread of Judah. And they went to the region of Moab to live there. The only character development that's really occurring in these first five verses is in regard to Naomi. Neither Elimelech nor his two sons have speaking parts. They are merely foils to bring us into Naomi's world of grief and despair. Therefore, we should be careful not to overread into their characters. However, I think it should not go without notice that Elimelech's name, my God is king, is a picture of the period of Judges, especially when you put it right next to in the time of Judges. There's this man named Elimelech. It's a picture of that period. If you're familiar with the book that comes after Ruth, 1 Samuel, would have originally been what we call 1 and 2 Samuel, all one book. In that book, in 1 Samuel 8, Israel asks for a king. And the Lord tells Samuel when he's pretty put out about it, don't, don't worry, it's not you they're rejecting, but it is me they're rejecting as king. So the time of Judges was idealistically a time when only God was king over Israel. On the other hand, the time of Judges was practically a time when every man was a king unto himself. To say that, well, God's my only king, often turns into, I'm my only king. 
Because it's real easy to transfer me, God for me. Just swap those two out. Not that we in our self-ruled sort of uh, world have never ever done that ourselves, God forbid. But I'm just saying maybe it's happened some other places. Uh, and you might, you might be familiar with that. Elimelech, my God as king, is not posited as an icon of righteousness. Boaz gets that role. So it's probably not going too far to say that he was a man of his times. My God as king functionally meant I am my own king. But don't miss the irony of these verses. Elimelech and his family leave the house of bread in search of bread. Bethlehem, house of bread. They leave to go find bread and... His wife, pleasantness or flourishing is what her name means. It's kind of a mixture of those two words, as we'll see as the book goes on. But it, it seems to be, her, her flourishing, her pleasantness seems to be coming to a halt here as they leave the house of bread. Of course, they're leaving for a famine. We'll get to that. But regardless of Elimelech's motivation, he sets out sojourning, migrating, to a place where he might find food, bread. And when we think bread, don't, don't think that, oh, you know, you can do without bread. I mean, steak and potatoes will do just fine. No, bread was their primary food. So to say bread is to say food in the ancient world. They, they didn't have a lot else that they sustained themselves day to day on. But in this sojourn, the reader is reminded of other sojourns. So, for instance, in Genesis 12, now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Abram, motivated much the same way, just out of hunger, leaves the land to go to Egypt to get some food. Now, as we know the story, things got dicey for Abram there, and if you recall, it wasn't one of his shining moments of faith either. And then in Genesis 19, so that was Genesis 12, but Genesis 19, we're reminded that Lot sojourned to Sodom because of the fertility of that region. Now, that's relevant, and we'll see why in just a moment. Things got more dicey for Lot in Sodom than they did for Abram in Egypt. And it's out of that sojourn to Sodom, after Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, through an incestuous relationship with his two daughters, that Moab was born. A fertile region just like Sodom was. So when we read that they journeyed to Moab, we should think, oh, okay, that place like Lot's journey to Sodom in order to prosper because of the fertility. They're leaving the house of bread to go to the place where they worship the gods of fertility, where they have lots of food because everything's fertile there. That's what's going on in the back of the Israelite reading this story at that time. Now Elimelech is sojourning. Peter, the apostle and the author of Hebrews, also make it clear that we are also called to sojourn. Ours is a chosen sojourning. Rather than choosing the comforts of life or the pleasures of sin, we are strangers and aliens in this world, sojourners. And beside, we know from Scripture that God rescued all of us as strangers to Himself 
and brought us in. So we are called to show compassion to the stranger or the sojourner. Now the word stranger or alien is the noun form of the same root that this verb sojourn comes from. They sojourned. In other words, they, they went to be strangers somewhere else. That's why I said they immigrated, which means when they got there, they were immigrants. Today, Americans are nomadic as well, but for entirely different reasons. Americans move about for promotions and financial gain. Most immigration in the world, both today and historically, are about survival, spurred by starvation. The hospitality that God's people are called to provide is life or death for these strangers. Israel migrated to Egypt because of a famine. And at first they were treated hospitably, and later they were treated with hostility. God has always called His people to treat such sojourners, such strangers, or migrants, with hospitality. But human nature, even among God's people, surprise, surprise, is to treat them with hostility. It's true in the church today. We see it all too often. How will this family be treated in Moab? How will this family be treated in Moab? What, what motivates Elimelech? Is it a lack of faith that God will provide that he takes off for Moab? Likely, but not that different from Abram's sojourn in that regard. We all have Ishmael's in our life, to borrow from another of Abram's stories. Is Elimelech's life don't usually get to know the answers to questions like that either. Things happen. We search for reasons why. Of course we do. We're scientifically minded. But we don't get those answers very often. We just have to trust and walk in faith. Why is this happening to me? We rarely know. The names of the two sons make it clear. Got it bad and goner. It's not going to end well for them. So that leads us to the third section, dying hope. Read with me verses 3 and 4. And Elimelech, that's my God is king, Naomi's, that's pleasantnesses or flourishings man, died, and she survived and her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite wives, the name of the first, obstinate, or you could say headstrong, but I like the O going with uh, obstinate and Orpah. So, obstinate, and the name of the second, reliable. Faithful might be better, but again, R for Ruth, R for reliable. Faithful. And they dwelled there ten years. Naomi's hope is dying. It's, it's not uncommon for books of the Bible or sections within them to begin a section or a book with a genealogy. We see it in Matthew's Gospel. It, it begins with a genealogy, and a genealogy gives a sense of both connection to the past. In other words, this is a part of a continuing story, but it also casts a hope toward the future. God is at work doing something 
and it's about to happen. The opening of Ruth, these first five verses, has the opposite effect of a genealogy. These verses serve to diminish any such hope and paint as bleak a picture as possible. The, the sense is that there is no future. These are the perfect conditions for God to work. He is the God who raises the dead, is he not? There's another genealogy that paints a picture of hopelessness, much like these verses do. Although this is technically not a genealogy, it's kind of an anti-genealogy. This one is, in fact, a genealogy, and it's that of Abram's family in Genesis 11. It kind of gets started back in chapter 9 of Genesis, at the tail end of Noah's life, uh, after the scene in which Noah gets drunk and his, son's, uh, his son Ham mocks his nakedness, Shem receives the family blessing, and Canaan, the future arch-enemy of Israel, receives the curse as he is a descendant of Ham. Now, let me take an aside here, and I take this aside because I think it's important for us to realize some things, and we don't often address things like this, but it's relevant. Speaking of that curse and blessing that happens with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, for centuries... There has been a heretical teaching about how the curse of Ham had something to do with blacks. It was useful to those who dreamed it up because it then says that Canaan would be Shem's servant, justifying in their minds slavery based on skin, skin color. Well, if you read the story, in fact, you'll discover that Ham was not cursed, as they suppose, the curse of Ham, they call it, but Canaan was cursed who happens to be the Canaanites of the land that were driven out by Israel. Um, and, and, and that heresy appears even in Bible dictionaries as a valid teaching until like this millennium. Like the last 20 years it's been rooted out. So like when I bought Bible dictionaries early in my Christian walk, I read that several times. It never sat right with me, but it was like, well, it's in the Bible dictionary. I mean, imagine the impact that has not only on readers like myself. What a, imagine reading that, if you're here today, an African-American person, reading that, and you're reading about some curse on you that's in the Bible, the horrific effect of such a heresy. Dreamed up out of thin air by slaveholders. Well, back to Genesis 9 through 11 in our story today. That curse in Genesis 9 is interestingly followed by genealogies of the sons of Noah. First, Japheth, whose descendants are spreading across the face of the planet, forming many of the known nations of the world. Then Ham, the one who got, whose descendant Canaan got the curse, from whom came the empires which dominated the ancient world. Every great empire, Babylon, Egypt included, dominated the ancient world, and they came from Ham. The reader would be a bit perplexed because it is Shem who was blessed and then Ham's descendant, Canaan, who was cursed. But the world's first great empires came from Ham, including Babel. So finally, the blessed one, we get to his genealogy, Shem. His brief, lackluster genealogy ends with this. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah. In other words, you're not supposed to bury your kids, but Haran had to bury his son. 
Haran, uh, uh, Haran died, rather Terah had to bury his son, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. It's like, okay, yeah, we know what barren means, but they just want to make sure we got it. There's no future here. Wait, I thought Shem was the one that got blessed, and now it's all going to end. But God. That's where Genesis 12 comes in. God appears to Abram and pronounces upon him that he would bless all nations of the world through him. And Abram, as we discussed on Easter, believed God. He believed that God could raise the dead. God intervenes with a promise. Well, back to Naomi in our text. Naomi's husband dies, but there's still a thread of hope for Naomi. Her sons marry Moabite women, but she'll take it. It'll do. The the names of these Moabite women foreshadow what is about to happen in the next scene, obstinate and reliable. They dwell there Ten years. Now, when you read they dwell there ten years, it is not the time to get out your chronological date charting of the Old Testament and go, okay, so when did they go down there? Now mark ten years, and this is the year that they return. No. When you're reading Hebrew narrative and you read ten years, ten was a number of completion. It means a long time. A a, a very complete period of time. They dwelled there. They didn't just mosey down there to try to get fed for your truth, but they're there for 10 years. And over this complete period of time, which it anticipates since it's a complete period that something's going to change, and that gets into next week's text, but over this period of time, they went from dying hope to dead hope. You see, hope still has a few more steps to descend into the tomb of despair, and that leads us to our fourth heading, Dead hope, verse 5 we read. And they also died, meaning uh, got it bad and goner. Both of them got it bad and goner. And the women survived bereft of both of her sons and her husband. In, In the ancient world, not only does this line spell death of any hope for Naomi's future, it puts that hope in a tomb. It rolls a stone over the entrance and it seals it shut. It puts guards in front of it to make sure nobody even attempts to pry it open. As we'll see next week, there's now nothing holding these daughters-in-law to stick around. In fact, there's plenty to tell them to get on with their lives. Naomi's expectation of a future is not only dead, but a hundred nails have been put in the coffin. In five verses, the narrator has set this story to begin in a virtual tomb, a tomb of despair. But it's fitting, for Israel herself was familiar with such a tomb. Naomi is bereft of both her sons and her husband. I I, I translated here in verse 5 that word as bereft. number of ways one could translate it. Earlier in verse 3, I chose survived, and I normally like to keep things the same. And both are good translations of that word. She's 
survived, you know, those, the, her sons and her husband, we might say, are survived by her. So she survived. They did not. When an obituary reads, she is survived by, we all know that the ones that are mentioned after the survived by are the grieving ones. They've suffered loss, but it's, uh, it's a euphemistic. It sounds nicer than saying that they're grieving. But since the amount of grief <clears throat> increases between verses 3 and 5, I, I wanted to strengthen the sense of grief that it carries, and that's where I went with bereft. She's bereft. More importantly, the Hebrew word that I'm speaking of there, translated that way, shares the same three-letter root for the word remnant. I said a moment ago that Israel was familiar with such a tomb. She was. Israel understood the concept of remnant. God would use a remnant to keep His covenant promises. If we want to understand the story of Scripture, we have to understand this thread about a remnant. And here we see it in Naomi's life. She is left as a remnant, barely hanging on. Paul picks up on this remnant theme in the New Testament. Quoting from Isaiah, Paul writes, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. That's in Romans 9. Then in Romans 11 he says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Isaiah, among the prophets, and many of them did this, but Isaiah had made it clear that God would allow Assyria to conquer Israel and destroy them because they failed to administer justice to the vulnerable. Yet there would be a remnant of disciples, as Isaiah would call them, those who listened and obeyed the Lord, from which the Lord would fulfill His promise. That theme of God raising up a remnant, or as Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 9, a, a light dawning in the midst of utter darkness, or in Isaiah 11, a root from the burned-over stump of Jesse springing forth from the charred ruins. This theme of God raising up a remnant would be recognized by Israelite or Jewish readers of the book of Ruth when they read that Ruth was bereft or she survived these deaths. She was, as it were, becoming a remnant. All of this, all the future story of Israel as a remnant, all of God saving by grace a remnant, is pictured here in the book of Ruth. These first five verses have set up the utter darkness from which light will dawn, the burned-over stump from which a root will spring up. Beginning to sound Christmassy. Are you familiar with these verses in Isaiah? They're on Christmas cards. And it will start with the faith of a Moabite woman named Where do we find hope in such a dark world? Where do we find hope in such a difficult marriage? Where do we find hope with such disobedient children? Where do we find hope with disease racking our bodies or taking our loved ones? Where do we find hope in a dark world? And what is it we hope for in this dark world? Well, we hope for a future in the God who raises the dead. 
And what exactly is this future that we hope for? A kingdom ruled by justice and righteousness. A place where there is hope and life and peace. You see, this book, Ruth, that begins in the tomb of despair, ends with the genealogy of David, looking forward to something greater that is coming than the time of the judges. Hope for a kingdom of justice and righteousness. We hope for a place absent the injustice and violence of the book of Judges, of the world we live in. One, not finally fulfilled in David and his earthly line, not completely, but it will be fulfilled when God raises the dead. Matthew's gospel, just like Ruth, begins in a tomb of despair after Herod slaughters the children of Rachel. She is weeping, or the children of, around Bethlehem. Rachel is weeping for her children. But that story is preceded by a genealogy that anticipates that God is at work. In fact, that genealogy includes none other than Ruth. Reliable, faithful. God is doing something to establish His kingdom, a kingdom of justice and righteousness. A kingdom which involves a band of disciples putting into practice the teachings of the king. The, the book of Ruth foreshadows the church as a city on a hill, a light in a dark world. Just as Ruth and Boaz, as we will see in the story that comes, just as they become agents of righteousness that function as a witness of and testament to God's reign, disciples living out the Sermon on the Mount are, in effect, the fulfillment, the antitype of Ruth and Boaz, doing what was right in God's eyes. But now both Jew and Gentile in the church, just like they were Jew and Gentile. Like Ruth and Boaz, we hope for a kingdom and taste that kingdom here and now as we listen to the king. Let's pray. Lord, as we arrive today, many came in a place of despair. We've encountered an account of people who were in despair and even went so far that all hope died. And yet you are the God who raises the dead and you give us hope beyond a grave, beyond anything that darkness can deal us. Lord, use these words from Ruth to plant seeds of faith and hope in the hearts of the hearers that would transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.